The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on this show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. The team at Invax is dedicated to delivering new personalized immunotherapy approaches to improve outcomes for people living with glioblastoma and other solid tumors. Leveraging decades of validated research and technologies, Invax's unique platform is designed to capture a tumor's full antigen signature and use it to stimulate a patient's immune system against remaining tumor cells. Invax is currently recruiting for a randomized phase 2b clinical trial of IGV-001 in newly diagnosed glioblastoma patients. Learn more about this Phase 2b trial at imvax.com or clinicaltrials.gov. Imvax, advancing a new approach to personalized cancer immunotherapy. Welcome to Game on Glio a podcast that tells the stories of brain cancer warriors, clinicians, medical experts, and those in the grief and loss community. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. This season, you will hear unique brain cancer and grief and loss stories, as well as my own journey through grief and loss. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or Instagram and YouTube at Game on Glio Podcast. You can also visit and subscribe to our website at thegameongliopodcast.com for our blog, insights, clinical trials, and guest snapshots. Season 3 of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT MedTech and Gametile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. And by Invax, personalized whole tumor-derived immunotherapies. Learn more at invax.com. Novel technology, innovative clinical trials, inspired care. That's what you get with UB Neurosurgery. UB Neurosurgery, also known as UBNS, is ranked as one of the top-rated and busiest neurocath labs in the country. Our doctors are trained at top centers across the nation and work in a collaborative environment making your treatment and care our top priority. With over 50 human clinical trials, UBNS has its finger on the pulse of diagnosing and treating complex disorders of the brain and spine. Are you looking for outpatient services? UBNS has it. Atlas, UBNS's outpatient neurosurgical center, offers specialty services such as gamma knife, minimally invasive treatments, back pain prevention, as well as treating disorders of the brain and spine. UBNS, advancing the practice of neurosurgery through novel technology, innovative clinical trials, and inspired care. Learn more at ubns.com. Every once in a while, you have those episodes, those guests that come on, that open your mind and make you see possibilities, thoughts, insights that you just would not have seen before. Now, I learn something from every episode I do. But today's guest, Chris Bakash, has been studying positive psychology since his diagnosis of brain cancer. And he shares some amazing insights that are really intriguing for me and have taught me something and have got me thinking a little bit more about the challenges we face in life and how we approach those, what we decide to do 
with those challenges. How we face life after going through so many extreme and significant hardships. He mentions a philosopher, a psychologist, William James, who has some really thought-provoking quotes, one of which is something that has got me thinking about how to approach the work that I do. All of this transpired from our conversation today. The quote by William James is, the greatest use of a life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. And isn't that what we all want to do? Do or create something that matters. And for some of us, do something in life that will outlast our life, that will carry on long after we're gone. It's very intriguing. It also gives us power, motivation, to do something with purpose. A word I use often on this show. So I want you to hold on to that quote today. Whatever journey you're facing, whatever challenge you might be going through at this moment in your life, hold on to that quote and then join us as we sit down with our guest next after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against the tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas, gamma-tile therapy is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamma-tile therapy is FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamma-tile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gamma-tile.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Game on Glio podcast. My guest today is Chris Bakish. Am I saying that right? Yeah, close enough. Some people say Bakash. <laughs> However you pronounce it is how we roll with it. He is joining me today. He is uh, an astrocytoma survivor, and he is joining us to tell us a little bit about his story and his journey with brain cancer. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today and for being willing to be open and, and sharing your, your story with us and giving us a glimpse into a pretty remarkable life that you lead. Oh, thanks. It's an honor to be here. You have a really remarkable and interesting story. And there were a number of things that I gravitated to personally in your story. One of the biggest things, obviously, was cycling. As many know, I am a, an avid cyclist and a huge cycle enthusiast. It's a love of mine uh, to my core. You were actually a professional cyclist. You trained a lot, cycled different cycling competitions on the weekends. You were diagnosed with an astrocytoma back in 2019. So it's a malignant brain cancer. It's not glioblastoma, but it is a malignant brain cancer. 
And then over the course of about two to two and a half years or so, you had roughly three brain surgeries. Yet you cycled, which I thought was really amazing because I know this trail. (laughs) I have never had the guts to do this trail. You did the Leadville Trail in Colorado, which is a very arduous 100 mile of high altitude cycling trail. How did you manage such a feat while also treating and receiving treatment and and working alongside doctors and stuff for malignant brain cancer that you had? I think it's all because of the of the people I've surrounded myself with over over the years. So if we back up to 2019, I was racing at the top of my game and training like a madman when I found out I had brain cancer. It was the off season mm-hmm. and I was training a lot, 15 to 20 hours a week, you know, doing two 5 to 7 hour rides on on the weekends and I started having these hallucinations after those rides. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I guess I'm, I guess I'm training hard enough. When you say hallucinations, what do you mean? Yeah, so I'll tell you exactly what I mean. I would come back from these long bike rides, and I would, I would have a shot of espresso and get into a hot shower. And around the time that I would get out of the shower, I'd be hearing, I'd be hearing music, but not like having a song stuck in your head, mm-hmm. like somebody is playing the song in the room you're in. Wow. Okay. And it was the music I was listening to over and over again while while training during the week. I thought it was just something strange that happens when you train too much, but it turns out that was because I had a brain tumor the size of an avocado in my head. Wow. So it was, I guess, pressing some buttons in there. Okay. And when I had my first surgery, my team and I were planning on or planning the the, the following season. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to mix up our usual schedule and we were inspired by some other athletes that had gone and raced Leadville, like you mentioned, in, in Colorado. We thought, well, let's do that. And so we were planning on this ahead of my diagnosis. And then when it happened, the night that I started to regain my, my clarity after surgery, mm-hmm. one of my teammates tells me, hey, you registered for Leadville. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, Really? You did that? So like during kind of like after the surgery, you were out of it. Are you saying that you registered for doing that race? Well, in kind of this after brain surgery haze? No, somebody had registered me. Oh, okay. What happened was we had made some people aware that this was something we were interested in. (laughs) And then when a friend of mine became aware of my situation, they were like, well, it'll be be fun if we just go ahead and register him anyway. That sounds like a fun goal <laughs> for, for him to, sure. to claw back to. <laughs> but I think it I think it worked. Because instead of my friends saying, Well, that's all over, or we can't do that anymore, or Chris is never gonna race bikes again. Instead, my my friends did something very hopeful, which was, we think you could still do this. We think you're up for this. And I knew that you know, I didn't have to do these things. I didn't, didn't have to go race Leadville, but mm-hmm. that was still an option for me if I could. It ended up being an interesting goal on the horizon that helped me and, and I think a few of my friends stay, stay pretty motivated to train and recover. When you went and you did race Leadville, like I said, it's 100 miles. It's probably, what, somewhere between an 8 to 10 hour race. How were you feeling through the course of that when you got done how did you feel? Did you feel like you were still kind of at the top of your game 
maybe close to where you were before you were diagnosed? Did you feel the difference before and after diagnosis? I had been training very consistently and and a whole lot Mm -hmm. for essentially six years prior to my diagnosis. Okay. And while certainly taking the the rest that I that I needed after my first couple surgeries, sure, that probably caused a little a little dip in my fitness. I still had the dividends and gains from six years of training all the time. So it's not like I was I was coming back from nothing. And I think I benefited from going into this this health campaign in, in very, very good shape. Mm-hmm. But Leadville by far was the hardest bike race I ever did. Sure, I'd ridden 100 miles before. I'd done rides of that length and that elevation change before. But the difference is, is that there's no oxygen in Leadville. Right. And you're like two miles closer to the sun. Yeah, it is, it is Colorado. So then there is an elevation change. <laughs> yeah, the dust, the oxygen, the sun, it just really wears on you all day long. Mm-hmm. Kind of have a, a permanent tan line on the back of one of my arms still. <laughs> And that's what made it really challenging. But the fact of the matter is, is you did it. You did this race and you went start to finish. And to your point, your friends didn't treat you any differently. Your family didn't treat you any differently. It was like, okay, he's got brain cancer. He's still Chris. Yeah, it was, you're dealing with this and we think you can still do amazing things, which is really inspiring to hear from the people who love you. So after Leadville... You switched gears a bit, and I say that pun intended. Everybody can laugh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you, you decided to focus on getting a master's degree, but not just any master's degree. Again, all while dealing with a brain cancer diagnosis, you decided to get a degree in applied positive psychology. And this, again, is very fascinating to me. This is coming from somebody with a a huge social work background. Mm -hmm. So this area intrigues me a great deal. So explain to us a little bit about what positive psychology is and why this area interested you so much. I will do it the other way around and explain why (laughs) an interest developed. And then I'll, I'll try to give a quick elevator pitch on positive psychology. When horrible things happen to you, sometimes the best of humanity comes to your doorstep. Mm. And as much as having this diagnosis was not something that I wanted, and it still is not something that I, that I want, mm-hmm. it brought around people and experiences that became highlights of my life and probably otherwise wouldn't have happened. So that intrigued me, that perplexed me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was wondering, well, why am I experiencing so much wellness in this time when I'm the most sick I've ever been? That's interesting. It was that paradox that first intrigued me to, to what's going on here? Mm-hmm. What is the, the power of relationships and vulnerability and close experiences that makes even awful times good times? Right. So that was where my, my interest was. And I, I wasn't working at the time. So I, I ended up doing a lot of reading and taking a couple online classes to explore this. Okay. And I eventually... I read my way into this corner of psychology called positive psychology, which is about the positive states and positive traits of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Some people summarize it in, in this mnemonic device called PERMA, which P, positive emotions, E, engagement and flow, which us cyclists know so well. Yep. 
R, positive relationships. M, meaning and purpose in that category too. And A, achievement. So I started looking into this and I knew this was the direction that I, I wanted to explore some more in. And I realized that the science kind of all started at the University of Pennsylvania, which is less than an hour from where I am. Mm-hmm. And I looked into it and they have this, this master's degree program. And I'm like, this is the best positive psychology program in the world. I will never get in, but what the hell, it'll be a good experience to apply to grad school and get rejected. <laughs> what a positive take on it. <laughs> exactly, right? So I applied to that insanely cool graduate program. I got into that really cool graduate program. And, and yes, during that graduate program, and where I, I specialized on positive relationships, specifically mm-hmm. friendships, I ended up having my third brain surgery pretty much at the midpoint uh, of that experience and had a seven-week campaign of radiation at the very end of that experience and, and graduated um. with half a head of hair. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that going to school for positive psychology should almost be prescriptive for people that are doing the types of treatments that brain cancer patients have to do because it really was a boost to my wellness and helped me understand all of the good that's happening around me. Positive psychology is not supposed to be Pollyanna thinking. You know, mm-hmm. the, let me just imagine this better. It's about realism and it's about optimism. An example I like to give is that a lot of brain cancer patients have these awake brain surgeries where we yeah. participate in our in our own surgeries and we'd lie there awake knowing what's going on and talking to our doctors. Mm-hmm. And positive psychology is optimistic in the sense that if you look at that experience, if you really pay attention to what is happening in that experience, you will see that we live in a phenomenal time to be alive because we can do things like have an awake brain surgery. Mm-hmm and precisely fire protons into an area to treat cancer very repeatedly, very safely. Mm-hmm. That realism is really optimism, and optimism is good for our well-being and good for our health. So would it be safe to say that it's applying positive attributes and almost changing the way that maybe you've grown up to think so that you can view real world events, real life events in a more optimistic or positive approach? So I would say that more so it helps us deal with adversity better. Okay. Right? Yep. Optimism, when it's applied to resilience, works like this. When something bad happens, right? You get sick. Mm -hmm. How do you view that? Do you describe it? Do you explain it as something that's permanent? And, and pervasive mm-hmm. and personal. Mm-hmm. An example would be, I have brain cancer. This is my fault. And everything's going to crumble and I'm going to die, right? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it's not rational. This is where when I say optimism is the true realism, that's not a rational thought. Rational thinking is appropriately external, mm-hmm. right? So you have personal versus external. You have temporary versus permanent. Mm-hmm. And the third is, is specific instead of pervasive. Interesting. So in a different explanation, a different explanatory style mm-hmm. is, okay, I have brain cancer now. I think that in a little bit of time, we'll be able to deal with this and I'll be able to resume a 
an almost normal life. And it acknowledges that things are going to be really hard for a while. Right. But for a while, temporary. I think that that's fascinating. And I mean, since we're, since we're on the topic and we're talking about this, we are now into 2023. You have been, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, have graduated with your master's in positive psychology. Mm -hmm. Where is your health status right now? Because as we all know, again, it's the realistic, obviously glioblastoma is a slightly different track. Yes. But we all know that any brain cancer is pretty severe. Most brain cancers, especially in adults, young adults and adults, are permanent. They're kind of lifelong, depending on which type of brain cancer it is. Where is your status now? What is your health status to date as we are here in 2023? And are you doing any treatments right now? I am, yes. Okay. So my health status right now is things are, are pretty stable. And after the last surgery and radiation that I did a year ago, really not much remained that was visible in MRI. Okay. Following that, I start, so this is springtime last year, basically exactly a year ago. I started a one-year treatment plan of a, a oral chemo okay. that's designed to go in and clear out and kill cells that were damaged by radiation. Mm -hmm. And I am done with the 11th of those 12 rounds. I finished that a couple days ago. And I just have one more round of that chemotherapy I'll do next month. And then I'll be, be done that. But as you said, I expect that this tumor is something that I maybe will have to deal with again in my life. Mm -hmm. We'll continue to do surveillance and, and look at it on MRI every few months. I have an MRI coming up on Friday, so <laughs> I'll have some more information soon. With an astrocytoma, is that pretty much standard protocol is that you do an MRI every three months? It sounds like it's fairly similar in monitoring as it is with GBM. Yeah, I, I think eventually with mine, I may be able to go down to like every every six months or nine months if it's not growing or doing anything. Mm -hmm. But yeah, pretty much the same surveillance protocol. Every three months. Okay. So now, interestingly, you know, as we're talking about treatment in you and I have talked about this previously, um, and we've poked around this topic before. In 2020, you were slated to start doing treatment, and you actually turned down radiation treatment because you were really scared of it. Then when it came back around in 2022, after you had your third surgery, your insurance qualified you to receive proton radiation treatment, and you decided, we're going to explore that, we're going to do that. So you did proton radiation therapy after the third surgery, but you didn't do treatment after your first two surgeries. Talk to us a little bit about what scared you, what stopped you, and then why you had the change of heart. This is interesting. I think I learned a lot about myself through this specific experience with radiation. Mm -hmm. So after my first two surgeries, I had two brain surgeries in the course of three weeks. Mm -hmm. My whole life had just been turned upside down. I went from being a business professional managing a large team to living at home with my parents, unsure if I was going to make it to the end of the year. We really had no idea. Right. So I was already scared. <laughs> yeah. And then the treatment team presents this option of going to see a radiation oncologist. Okay, what's another doctor's appointment? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds fun. Right. I'll go and check that out. 
So I didn't know this at the time, but the radiation oncologist I saw then and ultimately ended up treating me this past year mm-hmm. has probably done more radiation treatments than almost any other person in the world. Like he was old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll, he'll love you saying that. <laughs> that scared me a little bit too. It's like, does this guy, does he get to point the gun? Like, <laughs> this <laughs> old. qualified. <laughs> uh, and that was, that was naive of me. But I, I was scared of it. It's like, see, like I understood the, the potential side effects of, of radiation. And I thought, man, I just had two brain surgeries. Can I, can I just recover from that for a while? What were your surgeons and your oncology team saying? Because that's pretty standard protocol as to do radiation and then chemo. And for you to say, I'm not going to do the radiation right now, we, did you receive any pushback from them? Did they kind of question, are you sure about this? They, they said it's, it's sort of up to you. I think with the astrocytoma, there's, there's low, lower sample sizes in the research. Mm-hmm. And it's a little more rare and uncommon. Mm-hmm. They couldn't really say with, with certainty, statistical certainty, that doing it versus not doing it would lead to any difference in outcome. because. They didn't have the data, I guess, but I, I do remember my my oncologist saying, like, if it was me, I, w- I would I would advise you to do it, and I decided not to. And so it was really the fear of the unknown, and it sounds like the fear of the aftermath and what could happen down the road that really stopped you. It sounds like you really leaned into the fear, and it kind of kept it held you back from doing something that you ultimately decided to do. So what was it that changed your mind? What gave you that change of heart? So I think what gave me the change of heart is that proton therapy got approved, which unfortunately is kind of up to insurance companies, even though on the theory side, we know that it's a lot safer and spares a lot of healthy tissue. So it's unfortunate that it's up to insurance, but for whatever reason, my insurance approved proton therapy and I had a change of heart. I began to see the what I, what I thought first as this radiation oncologist, you know, it's not, it's not his brain. Mm-hmm. He's not thinking about this. At first, I saw that as kind of a lack of care. But what it, I think it really was, was he's dedicated his life to treating people this way. And he just believes so deeply in its ability and its safety. Mm-hmm. I misjudged that. I, I really misjudged that at first. Then I began to see that and gave it a try. Do you think that some of your training actually helped you? navigate making that decision and being able to look at some of your fears in a different sense, in a different light? You mean my training in school? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that the more I, I got involved in my graduate program and in my studies, we study, we study mindfulness, we study rational thinking in general. Mm-hmm. It helped me slow down some of my decision making. Interesting. So now proton radiation treatment is it's a safer method of radiation delivery. Correct. Yes. Okay. My understanding it is because fixed beam radiation will will pass right through the body, mm-hmm. whereas proton therapy, because it's a particle, they can calibrate it to stop at certain depths and at certain areas. Okay, that's interesting. Isolating a tumor versus passing through the other side of the brain, right? And radiating all of the healthy brain too. Now, did you have any? Were there any side effects? Did you feel? Um, did you hit like the radiation wall or have any radiation sickness when you were finished with treatment? I was tired. That was it, really. Just fatigue. The radiation itself is pretty fascinating. 
machinery. Like I'm, you know, engineer by training. So I was <laughs> totally nerding out in there the entire time. <laughs> yeah, my late husband did that too. <laughs> did your husband or anybody you've ever talked to mention the uh, the northern lights that happened during proton therapy? He did a different form of radiation therapy. Um, it wasn't standard radiation, but it wasn't proton therapy. But he did mention not the northern lights, but he did mention some kind of weird light formation that happens during radiation. And he had to wear a mask, um, a very targeted mask that was made specifically for him. Yeah, same. Yeah. And he would geek out on even just how, like he actually had them take him back the day before his treatment because he wanted to see the machine and how it worked because he was an engineer. So he, <laughs> he just, he's like, I want to know what it is I'm putting my head into. <laughs> like, show me like the yeah. mechanics of this. How does this work? So he did touch on that a little bit. I never really went into depth with him about what he meant by that. I, I just never, I never really thought to ask. It's fascinating. Do you, do you want me to explain? Yeah, if you, if you could. I mean, I would love to know kind of what he meant by that. So when you're bolted into the table in the mask, mm -hmm. you can tell when the beam goes on. All of a sudden, the, the room is making this kind of pumping sound. Mm -hmm. And I would always close my eyes and try to meditate. And all of a sudden, I would, I would see these, these bolts of blue and red light coursing across my eyelids. Okay. It was like you're in a dark room and the windows have, have rain on them. And down the street, there's a police car with its lights on. That's interesting. And it's kind of refracting through the water into these little bolts of blue and red. So I, I asked my radiation oncologist the next meeting I had. And he's like, yeah, this, that's the thing that happens. And the understanding is when the proton collides with the skull, mm -hmm. uh, it creates an equal and opposite re reaction, yep. physics. Yep. And that emission of energy that happens from the collision emits a small amount of X-ray, energy in the form, in the wavelength of X-ray. When the optic nerve receives that signal, because the optic nerve wraps all around the brain, mm -hmm. when it receives that signal, it, it does what the optic nerve does and you know, receives some stimulus and, and displays what it thinks it saw. <laughs> and that's, that's what shows up. That is so wild. Like, it's just... Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. <laughs> and you're talking to somebody who's a bit of an astronomy geek. So I'm totally like, okay. my head is going to you know, galaxies and pulsars and quasars that are, you know, millions of thousands of light years away. And when we receive that information and how it translates, and it's, it's almost like it does the same thing. I mean, that's, that's wild that that's crazy. So now I know what he was talking about. I just thought maybe it was just like medications or something kicking in. I wasn't sure. That's really crazy. No, it's protons running into your skull. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Little tiny cannonballs hitting your skull. We just got a, uh, a radiation 101 lesson. <laughs> so outside of all of this, you also did a clinical trial for an oral gene inhibitor. Are you still part of this clinical trial? Tell us a little bit about what that was or what that is and how you feel that's benefiting you. Sure. So this clinical trial was something that was on my oncologist's radar back in 2020, but the trial wasn't opened yet. Okay. The trial was called Indigo, I believe its its brand name was. The drug was called Voracinidib, one of those crazy drug names. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's a, it's a gene inhibitor for people with the IDH1 mutation. Okay. I think the general idea is that this drug would find that gene mutation, 
and, and latch on and prevent the cells that have that, which are only the cancer cells, which is the clever part about it, yep. and prevent them from, from metabolizing and basically starve them. Okay. That sounded great. It had essentially zero side effects were possible because it wasn't really interacting with, with any healthy tissue. Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, let's, let's give that a try. So they, they submitted all of my stuff when it became eligible in probably this time of year, spring 2021. Okay. So I would go down and do a bunch of blood work and get the month's worth of drugs, do it. I never noticed any side effects, but there weren't any to notice really anyway. Mm-hmm. And we, we kept doing that and kept doing MRI for the next six or seven months until the fall of 2021. Mm-hmm. The tumor was, was there, it was growing, it didn't seem to have any impact to its growth rate. Okay. So that means one of two things. Either if I was on the active drug, it wasn't working for me, mm-hmm. or I was on the placebo because it was a 50-50 placebo. Right. That was challenging. That made me angry for a while. And I understand it's necessary to have the science and, and to know for sure that the drug is working. It doesn't help though when you're the patient walking through and you don't want to be taking. Th- I think that's the hard. You're doing part. a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, you're doing a lot part. of work for this this drug company too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, giving them twenty four vials of my blood every month, mm-hmm. and that was tough. I struggled with that. Ultimately, I came to peace with it by by thinking this is the price somebody has to pay so that we can put safe drugs out there for everybody else. Right. When did you stop doing the gene inhibitor? We stopped doing the gene inhibitor, well, the trial, in uh, fall of 2021. Okay. And at that point, we started pursuing the third surgery. Okay. Now, the problem was is that that was the height of the pandemic. Yeah. That was the worst of the worst. Yeah. It took from that October until ultimately when I had my surgery, which was the last day of January 2022, okay. to get it scheduled. Right. They couldn't staff a team Wow, because there were so many people out with COVID. Of course, they were prioritizing cases that were dire. Mine was elective. Right. And there were a lot of, I mean, the pandemic throws a curve into so many different things. Obviously, my husband was diagnosed before the pandemic hit, but got worse during one of the peaks in the height of the pandemic because it went on for so long. It just makes everything so challenging. You know, when you're going in all of a sudden for MRI scans and they're taking your temperature and, you know, he needed me, he wanted me by his side every single, going in for MRIs was nerve wracking for him, for both of us, yeah. every three months. And there was one particular time we went in, they did the, the scan for the temp, he was fine, they scanned me and it, I came back with like, it was like 100.7 or something like that. And they said, you can't be in here. And I'm like, I don't, I'm telling you, dude, I don't have COVID. <laughs> I do not have COVID. I haven't left the house. And they're like, you can't be in here. You have a temperature. I'm like, but I don't feel like I have a fever. I don't feel achy or cold or have sweats or, of course, you know, TMI. But, you know, I get out to the car and Mike's freaking out because he wants me inside, you know, while he waits. And I'm talking to my doctor and she's like, well, let's walk through this. She's like, because typically if you have a fever, you, you know, your body tells you like it's achy and chilled and you just feel like you have a fever. We're walking through like a whole scenario and she's like, are you ovulating? And we're counting through the calendar. I'm like, yep. <laughs> and so I go back in to tell the doctor and it didn't matter. 
It's the, it was the height of the pandemic. So did, they didn't care. That's nice. <laughs> They're like, we're great to travelating, but yeah. So it totally like, and Mike just sits there and he's shaking his head the whole time. And I'm like, this is just the reality. Like this was just life. This was kind of what we had to deal with. So it does. It just makes everything so challenging. But yeah, it was just a wacky, wacky time to be dealing with these kinds of scenarios. I am curious, speaking of wacky times and kind of how we all look at, especially given the pandemic, with all of us, whether we've walked through a brain cancer journey or not, the pandemic has taught, I think, all of us globally a great deal about life the value and the importance of life. I know that it definitely gave me pause outside of Mike's diagnosis and the miscarriages and kind of everything that we lost. I really started to talk about forcing you to stop and just take a beat and value life in a different way. I want to throw that question out to you because you and I talked about this before when we were on the phone once we were talking about your master's program and I was really intrigued by some of the evidence-based theories that you were studying. And you had said to me at that time, and actually I made note of it when we got off the phone because it just really fascinated me. You had said that it helped you answer the question, what makes life worth living? That learning some of these practices and these theories and given what you had walked through and what you continue to walk through, that it, it has opened your mind a bit to what it is truly that makes life worth living. So can you share with our listeners what does make life worth living for you? What has this taught you, this journey? Yeah, it helped me find the secret sauce for for me at least. This will actually put a nice wrap on the why I don't really race bikes anymore as well. Mm -hmm. There's a founding father of positive psychology. His name is Chris Peterson. Mm Mm-hmm. Chris Peterson has this, this famous quote when he was asked to summarize positive psychology in, in one sentence. And his quote is, other people matter. And that's it. Mm. It's, it's funny. My, my diagnosis came a few months before the pandemic. And I, I, I kind of watched my experience happen in some other people near me as the pandemic was happening, where you had that moment to take pause. When I woke up in an ambulance and, and realized I wasn't going to work the next day, I, I call that my corporate snow day. <laughs> so when I was having my corporate snow day, realizing that, okay, I actually have a, a rare pause in my life right now that I wasn't expecting and maybe won't get ever again, I decided that I wanted to change some things. Riding my bike 15 to 20 hours a week was, was really good for being a bike racer. Mm -hmm. It was really good for being in awesome physical shape and being really sharp, but I couldn't keep a relationship going. Mm -hmm. I was really struggling making a romantic relationship work. Mm -hmm. I wasn't keeping in touch with a lot of people I cared about. You know, I was missing family events and family milestones because I was out racing my bike. Mm -hmm. And it's a really selfish lifestyle is the best way to put it. Interesting. What I decided as I was laying there with my feet up in the hospital was... However long I have left, which at that point I I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I knew I had brain cancer Mm -hmm. and I didn't know much more. However long I have left is going to be dedicated to helping other people and valuing relationships. Mm. And that was just abundantly clear to me. It was one of those times in, in my life where I felt like I knew exactly what was going on. I had the utmost clarity. Wow. I am here now and this is happening because I need to value other people more. Not as like a consequence, but 
the opportunity in this is to redesign a life that values relationships more. It's so interesting that you bring this point up because in retrospect and in hindsight, after Mike died and given the upheaval that my life has gone through over the last couple of years, I had taken pause and I didn't, I didn't necessarily take pause when Mike was diagnosed. When he started to do better, when he was stable for a while was when I started to take pause. And for me, it was kind of a similar moment where right before he was diagnosed, and I honestly, for, for a split second, because it's human nature, I thought maybe I brought this on. Maybe I invited this, this trauma into our lives because we were struggling. We had had some miscarriages. We were now in, at that point in the process of adopting and getting ready to bring home a baby. And for some reason, I was still off. Mm-hmm. Even though you know, I was struggling from the miscarriages, we were bringing home a baby and I was so content with that. But I was so consumed too with what was going on in our political system at the time. There was some turmoil going on here locally. You know, we had the the Capitol riots, and I was so consumed with all of this negativity that had kind of started to seep in, and was really kind of enraptured with what was going on out there, and so focused on things that really didn't pertain to the value of life. It wasn't until after he started to be stable that I really, that was my pause and my moment of clarity where I really took a step back and said, none of this, none of that stuff really matters. Mm -hmm. None of that stuff is stuff that we should be focusing our energies on because the true value of life are the relationships that you have in it and the ways that you can help other people and make an impact or make a difference. And that was why when he died, the first thing I did was I dove into starting a podcast that hadn't been done before in this nature. But I didn't see any of that. Had that not happened to him, and obviously I would take it all back, you know, in a heartbeat if I could, but had none of that, had that had we not walked through any of those losses and any of that journey, I wouldn't see life the way that I see it now. I am not as futuristic thinking. I really value the day-to-day and value what is in front of me each week and staying content with what I have here and now. I love that. It's really actually just not too long ago posted a quote by Confucius <laughs> because I am very philosophical. So What was it? Because I've got a quote for you that's on my mind right now. Really? Yeah, it's on yours. Okay. So his was, go as slow as you need to go. Just never stop. So you can go as slow as you need to go in life. There's no rush. Just never stop going never stop moving forward, but you don't have to race. You don't have to rush. You go as slow as you need to go. Do you ever feel like in in your experience with your life being turned inside out and upside down, do you ever find yourself thinking that your life is happening out of order? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's just like constantly what it feels like right now. (laughs) (laughs) I've challenged myself on that one, but like that that one recurs for me. Of course, there is no order. The, The order is an illusion. I think that that's what it is, right? There is really no order to life. Life is chaos. Life is messy. Life is, it just is. You know, there's no beginning, middle, and end. You're born and you start to walk through the challenges that are life. And if you're blessed enough, you may get into your 80s or 90s or, God willing, like all of the women in my family, they're hundreds. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's just, I don't think there is any order to things. And being raised an Italian Catholic, of course, you know, it's you find somebody, you live together, you get engaged, you get married, then you have children, you focus on career, like there's an order to it. All of this happening 
has really kind of put all of that in pause where I don't really even care about the order of things. I'm just living life to live life and to be the best version I can right now for others out there and for the relationships that I do have in my life. Mm -hmm. So I totally agree with you. You usually learn that lesson the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As we get ready to, I mean, obviously we're in 2023, but as we kind of gear up and approach 2024, what are you looking forward to? What do you have in store for the next year or so? You know, what what are you looking towards? Well, right now I'm I'm loving teaching. I teach high school math and I, I teach a class on positive relationships at the University of Pennsylvania with I'm I'm a TA, I should I should qualify. So I teach with with some other great professors. And I am really excited to be developing a keynote that I can travel around and give at different events and and different forums that refines everything we just talked about, Shannon, into a succinct lecture on positive relationships and how to cultivate them. I love that. I'm working on that and developing that and starting to shop that around to, to businesses and places that might want to hear it. And I pair it with the documentary that we made about the Leadville experience Mm -hmm. at a nice little film festival run with the last year. So that's on the horizon. And I'm applying to some, well, I'm going to apply to one PhD program this year. That is my goal. Wow. Are you really? Yeah. I kind of made up this, this construct in my master's thesis, which... It sounds that sounds really wishy-washy, like I just pulled it out of a hat. But I constructed a psychological construct <laughs> in my master's thesis, and I really want to research around it. I want to research what I call virtue resonance, which is the experience of two people, friends, I say, seeing the best in each other in hard times. Fascinating. And how that forum, that crucible of a adverse experience bringing out the best in each other can be good for our overall well-being and health. It's also a powerful way to have a relationship, any type of relationship. That is such a powerful way to to be able to have a friendship that positively feeds off of each other during such an adverse and traumatic experience or time or challenging time. There's a bond and an energy that's translated between the two that you just can't experience anywhere else. I think that that's extremely fascinating. I, I would dive into that research. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you my thesis if you want to fall asleep quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do remember those days. I did my master's program and uh, getting through my thesis was painful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I think this is fascinating. I think that there's some really amazing things. And you're also now, I mean, we can you know, share that you, you live with your girlfriend now, which I think is absolutely amazing. And I'm excited for you on that. Oh, thanks. She's the best. It sounds like it. I mean, she sounds like an absolutely wonderful girl and, and super supportive in your journey. It sounds like, I mean, you guys seem to have some, just, there's just so many uplifting and energizing moments in, in all of that you're doing. I do want to ask some fun rapid fire questions. All right. What was one of the hardest rides you've ever done? My coach brought me out for a training ride one winter where it was like 20 degrees and I was slipping everywhere, freezing my fingers off and tasting blood. And I think those were were the rides that really built character. (laughs) I never liked those rides. (laughs) So I'm with you there. 
Why do you love the Adirondacks so much? Uh, nature is, is where I experience the divine. And I love being above the tree line, being able to, to look out and see everything around. And the Adirondacks have uh, ample numbers of peaks to do that on. That's beautiful. And I agree with you. Uh, ADK is, it's got a special place in my heart. We used to go every year. Upper J, Keene Valley, that area. Yeah, that's it. I always said it was my peace. That's my soul. Yeah. Kind of out there. The people are great too. Oh my God. The people are absolutely amazing. I love it. One positive psychology tool that others can use to see life more positively. Pay attention. Here's a quote. My experience is what I agree to attend to. So pay attention and surround yourself with positive emotion and positive relationships. Oh, I love that. That's a William James quote. William James. I will pull that quote out for all of our listeners because I know people are going to ask me to. Last, what's your favorite song on your playlist right now? My favorite song right now is Boundless Love by John Prine. It's a song that Mary Grace and I cover frequently when we, when we play. It's a beautiful song. Oh, well, Chris, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today and for sharing so much of your journey with us. If people want to follow along with your journey or learn more about your story, where can they find you at? You can find more about me and the story at my website, chrisbakash.com. I should really write a more up-to-date blog post, so this will be good motivation. <laughs> and you can find out about the film at mountainsweclimbfilm.com or on social media. Or come to Doylestown and hang out. <laughs> you open that door. <laughs> well, Chris, Bakash, thank you so much for joining us, for being part of this journey with us and sharing your story with us. I really enjoy having you on and cultivating this friendship and, and getting to know you. It's truly, truly amazing. And hopefully you keep cycling. Um, I know you don't do it professionally anymore, but hopefully that passion never goes away. Um, as a, a cycling enthusiast, hopefully it's something that carries with you for the rest of your life. Thanks, Shannon. I will. And you've really built an amazing thing here all around helping others. And I'm, I'm really impressed in, in all of you. Well, I don't know if I deserve it, but thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that. Of course you do. <laughs> Not good with compliments, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Take it. Take the compliment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for all of our listeners, I will have all of this information up on our website and up on Podbean, as well as all of our social media platforms. With that, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by UB Neurosurgery. Learn more at ubns.com. Walking through loss teaches us so many things. It's a journey that has no end. You grow, you falter, you take steps backwards, you grow again. When you walk through loss, you're sadder, but you're wiser. You're not whole after loss. You learn how to be strong in the face of adversity. You learn how to keep standing, taking punches. Sometimes you are asked to endure 
more than you can possibly imagine. But because you've walked through significant loss, you're capable of taking those hits, standing tall, and continuing to walk. Someone gave me some great advice recently. Someone I've been learning from. When you're in the water, when you ride a wave, if you fight the current, you will always lose. But when you learn to go with the current, to let go of control and to stop fighting, things naturally flow. And you find yourself in a better spot than where you started. You're not as exhausted. You're not as confused. You have more energy, more reserve for the next go around. We need to use and harness our energy, the energy that's inside us, to calmly and serenely flow with the current. And when you're walking through significant challenges in life, it can be very hard to want to let go and to flow with wherever the current is taking you. But in doing so, you will end up in a better space than where you start. As we head into a new season, a season of change, we need to let go, to not fear, to empty our minds, and to flow with the current. Walk with grace, with purpose, with gratitude. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers, such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. Like what you hear? Share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio podcast, Facebook at Game on Glio, or visit our website or YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.